Hi, friends. Welcome back to Have You Met Her, a podcast about amazing women. I'm Paige, and I'm digging into the lesser-known women in history and sharing some of their stories with you. For the month of July, we're talking about women who had a passion for our Earth. These women work tirelessly to leave our world better than they found it. This week, we'll be learning about a strong African woman whose movement has planted more than 30 million trees in Africa. She overcame obstacles, politically and personally, to be an agent of change and a steward of the earth. A 2004 Nobel Peace Prize winner who left a legacy for environmentalists, activists, women, and others seeking justice and empowerment through the world. Go and hug your favorite tree and then join me for episode 20, Have You Met Wangari Mathai? My favorite place to write these episodes is in my backyard. I have a cute little patio set and I lay out all of my notes and research and I dive right in. It's been a hot summer. Well, anything is a hot summer when you're in Alaska and through and through. And it would be super hot to be in the bright sun trying to get my creative juices flowing. I am so lucky that I have this marvelous, huge maple tree that covers that side of my backyard in the most delicious shade. It's my favorite part of my backyard and we use it to secure one side of a hammock and it's home to a little birdhouse that's constantly occupied. During my research for this episode, I constantly thought of this tree and how much I would miss it if it were gone. Let's meet someone else who also loved trees and saw all of the wonderful things that they bring into our world. Wangari was born on April 1st, 1940 in Kenya, Africa, in a rural village near Nairi. Their small community was close, like everyone was a friend, and the women of the village worked hard and worked together to grow, harvest, and prepare food. It was a simple, good life. There was plenty of wood to gather for cooking, wild fruit to eat, and spring water to sustain the village. Everyone had enough, no one was poor, and no one was starving. Wangiri held an especially special memory from her childhood, the fig tree. There was a huge wild fig tree that grew in the village. Her mother and the other mothers were fiercely protective and almost reverent towards this tree, never allowing anyone to cut it or even collect the dead twigs from it. When the mothers were asked why this tree was special, they would talk about all that the trees gave them shade and fruit and protection. This memory and the lesson of respect for nature would always be an important part of Wangiri's life. Traditionally, the Kaikyu, which was the most populous ethnic group in Kenya and the line that Wangari's family belonged to, was matrilineal and women were permitted to express their opinions and played an important role in society. The Kaikyu were spiritual people who believed first and foremost that the universe is composed of interacting and interconnected forces 
whose manifestation is the physical things that we see and those that we don't. This traditional way of life changed dramatically when the Kenyan people came into contact with British explorers around 1888. The scramble for Africa began when it was discovered the abundant and fertile farmlands and many Europeans scrambled to claim land and establish colonies. Kenya officially came under British rule in 1895 and with the new settlers came new beliefs and a breakdown of the village structure. Many of the African people found work farming for white-owned farms. Wangari's father was one of those people and the family moved near Nakuru for a time. When Wangari turned nine years old, she began attending primary school and was immediately recognized as a great learner. At 11, she moved to St. Cecilia's Intermediate Primary School. During her years there, Wangari learned English and became Catholic. She graduated at the top of her class in 1956 and was admitted into the only Catholic high school for girls in Kenya. In 1960, the United States offered to help prepare Kenya for its coming independence from British rule. Scholarships were offered to go to U.S. colleges to several hundred Kenyan students. One of them was our brilliant friend Wangari. In Kenya, women were not often encouraged to pursue an education, especially past primary school. Wangari was such a good student, though, that her family was supportive of her continued growth, and she promised that she would learn as much as she could, and then she would return to Kenya to share what she had learned. Wangari bravely headed to Kansas, where she attended Mount St. Scholastica College, which is now Benedictine College. She majored in biology with minors in chemistry and German. And in 1964, she earned a Bachelor of Science degree. Her passion and interest in her studies grew, and with funding from the Africa America Institute, she studied at the University of Pittsburgh. Wangari's time in Pennsylvania taught her a lot. She received her master's degree in biological sciences, but also learned about the concept of environmental restoration when a group of local environmentalists pushed people to participate in practices to lower air pollution in the city. Environmental restoration, sometimes called ecological restoration, is the process of recovering an impaired, damaged, and or destroyed ecosystem. It is the process of undoing the damage that is done to the environment. In 1966, Wangari returned to her hometown. What she saw broke her heart. All of the trees had been cleared for plantations. Streams and springs of clean, clear water had dried up and disappeared. The land looked exhausted, barren, and tired. Soil erosion was apparent, and the nutritious food crops that her village had always grown for the community had been replaced by cash export crops, like tobacco. People in the village were hungry, poor, and sad. Devastation was everywhere.
Wangari had been offered a research assistant position to a professor of zoology at the University College of Nairobi. When she arrived to start her position, she was told that it had been given to someone else. Wangari believed that she had been replaced because she was a woman and because of her Kaikyu status. The changes in the culture of Africa had made the outspoken ways of Kaikyu women undesirable to many. It was the very first time that Wangari realized that she may have to fight discrimination for her place in Kenya. Ego bruised, she dusted herself off and found a different position as a research assistant in the microanatomy section of the Department of Veterinary Anatomy in the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University College of Nairobi. She was the first woman to receive a doctorate from the University of Nairobi and the first woman to become a professor and a department chairperson. It was an exciting time professionally for Wangari, um, but also personally. Wangari got married to Mwangi Mathai in 1969, and she had her first son, Wawiro, in 1970. It was a tumultuous time in Kenya. Tom Mwoyaba, who had helped found the education program that allowed Wangari to receive her education, was assassinated and led to the end of the multi-party democracy in Kenya. Wangari continued to work as a lecturer at the university, but she also became involved in more than just that. She helped campaign for equal benefits for the women working on staff at this school, which was met with resistance and a few burned bridges. She also became involved in a handful of organizations, including the Kenya Red Cross Society, the Kenyan Association of University Women, the National Council for Women of Kenya, and the United Nations Environment Program. She had always had a thirst for knowledge and took the opportunity to continue learning through her work with these programs. During her participation in the Environment Program, it became crystal clear to Wangari that the root of most of Kenya's problems of poverty, hunger, and crime could be directly linked to environmental degradation. And she remembered her time in Pittsburgh and what she had learned about environmental restoration. Wangari also expanded her family, having a daughter, Wajira, in 1971, and her final son, Muta, in 1974. Wangari's husband was a member of Kenyan parliament. His district was one of the poorest in Nairobi, During his campaign, he had made promises to lower unemployment and help secure work and income for his constituents. Wangari felt like she could help him and the communities of the highest needs. She was resourceful and passionate, especially about women's rights and environmental issues. Wangari connected these ideas and founded EnviroCare LTD, a business which recruited people in the community to plant trees and then paid them a stipend to tend them and keep them growing. Wangari knew that the key to any successful project to improve the living conditions for a community was to have the people in the community take an active, responsible role. It was really disappointing when EnviroCare ran into funding problems and the business went under. 
However, Wangari's concept and the ideas had gained the attention of the United Nations Environment Program, and the group asked her to attend the first UN conference on human settlements, which was known as Habitat One. Always up for learning and growing, Wangari eagerly attended the conference and came back with a renewed commitment to making a tree planting program work in Kenya. It was around that same time in 1977 that Wangari's husband, Mwangi, started having some real concerns about his wife. He felt that she was too strong-minded for a woman and he was having a difficult time controlling her. He viewed her environmental work as subversive, as did many of his peers in parliament. Um, They wanted to agree and be compliant to remove fields and use them to grow cash generating crops for export and she was fighting against that and telling them that that wasn't where their head should be and what they should be working towards. Mwangi also never was able to get over the fact that Wangari's formal education far exceeded his own. In her memoir, which is called Unbowed, Wangari says, It never occurred to me that in order for us to survive as a couple, I should fake failure and deny any of my God-given talents. I did not recognize the source of our discontent, but looking back, I can see that tensions began early and they were often precipitated by trivialities. Wangari never intentionally tried to make her husband feel less powerful or any less the man of the house. But she was also proud of her accomplishments, proud of her Kaikyu background, and she just couldn't stop herself from essentially outgrowing him. They formally separated and were eventually divorced. The divorce, like it seems to a lot of times, became more of an attack on Wangari. She was accused of having an affair uh, with one of uh, her husband's co-workers, and she was also called an uncontrollable woman and a mad woman. Her husband also demanded that she change her last name. She had taken his name when they got married, even though she didn't necessarily want to, and now that he wanted a divorce, he was demanding that she change it back, and she didn't want to do that because some of her important paperwork had that last name, and, you know, that was the name she was professionally known by. So instead of giving him back his last name, she just added an A to Mathai and called it good enough. Wangari was actually found at fault um, by the judge hearing the divorce, uh, which really upset her. And uh, she commented publicly that the judge was either incompetent or corrupt. Um, When that got back to the judge, she was actually found in contempt of court and was ordered to serve six months in jail. Wangari had a good attorney, though, uh, after a few days. He worked out a deal with the judge where if Wangari would apologize, then he would let her out. So she only ended up serving three or four days of that six months. Wangari was still working at the university as a professor and was making money, but she wasn't making enough money to support herself and her three children. 
And the divorce ended up being very expensive because of all the arguing and then the contempt of court uh, rulings. So she actually had to send her three children to stay with their dad for a few years while she figured out how she could best support them. It was a really sad effect of the trial and it was really hard for Wangari to be away from her children as I'm sure it was hard for them to be away from her. Now that Wangari didn't have a husband who was constantly telling her to stay home and be more submissive and her children were cared for but not underneath her roof, she found herself with a lot more time and decided to lean kind of heavily into her involvement with all the organizations that she was a part of. One of those organizations was the National Council of Women of Kenya, and Wangari presented them with an overview of what she had learned while she was attending that Habitat One conference. She explained how important it was for them to return trees to their communities, trees that could provide cooking fuel, fresh fruit, shade, and protection against land erosion. The council was moved by her presentation and approved her proposal, and the Green Belt Movement was officially born. On World Environment Day that year, June 5, 1977, a group of women marched from downtown Nairobi to the outskirts of the city to plant seven trees in honor of seven historical leaders in Kenya. When Wangari was asked about the name Greenbelt Movement, she explained that people needed to understand how important it was to bring green back to the land. She said, We wanted to emphasize that by cutting trees, removing vegetation, having this soil erosion, we were literally stripping the earth of its color. In Kenya, less than 3% of the forests remained. While people recognized that trees were being removed at an alarming rate, and they also recognized that their lives were becoming more difficult, it was really hard to understand the connection between those two things. The Green Belt Movement taught people how those two situations were connected and how they could make them both better. First, trees helped keep the air clean by removing harmful gases in the air. As more and more roads were built and cars were becoming more common, there was more pollution but less protection. Secondly, trees provided a variety of fruits and nuts and also habitats for all kinds of animals. Their leaves also provided food for cows, goats, and other small farm animals. Thirdly, trees also reduced soil erosion. This is when the top layer of soil is carried away by wind or other forces. It's an unnatural event that leaves the soil in poor condition. Poor conditions mean poor crops or even the inability to grow crops at all. And lastly, trees provide fuel for women to cook over an open flame, as many women were still doing. Firewood was used to cook, and since the firewood had become so scarce, women had begun to cook different foods, processed, refined foods that took less time to cook, 
but also provided less nutrition. Not only were these new foods not as healthy, they also cost more, so it was a vicious cycle of poverty. Wangari and the Greenbelt Movement began by going to the women. In Kenya, most farmers were women and most animals were tended by women. These were the people who were seeing firsthand how impactful more trees would be and why. The movement had plans and resources to support it, but waited to be invited into a community. Again, showing that they relied on the belief that the people in an area must want it to work in order for it to work. Once invited, Wangari and her team would meet with the community to determine their individual needs, getting suggestions, and learning from each other. Then, the participants were led in a recitation of the Greenbelt Movement Pledge. It states, Being aware that Kenya is threatened by the expansion of desert-like conditions, that desertification comes as a result of misuse of land by indiscriminate cutting down of trees, brush clearing, and consequent soil erosion by the elements, and that these actions result in drought, malnutrition, famine, and death, we resolve to save our land by averting the same desertification by tree planting wherever possible. Knowledgeable foresters would teach women to gather seeds and start seedlings. They made sure that only trees native to the area, like fig, banana, citrus, papaya, mango, and cedar, were brought in and planted. The women learned how to start seedlings and to nurture them until they were ready to be planted in the ground. They were also sure to teach how to strategically plant future wind barriers around villages and schools. The organization also provided hose and water tanks and encouraged the communities to appoint what they called nursery attendants to visit and check in on the seedlings and the women. With all the support, training, engagement, and follow-ups, many trees survived and flourished. Kenya's mild climate allowed for most trees to mature in three to five years. But there was another layer to the project as well. For every tree that survived for three months, and according to the records, about 80% of the trees would, the woman who planted it would receive a token payment of four cents. For many of them, this was more money than they had ever earned. And once their trees matured, they were able to sell the fruit and firewood to earn even more money. The Green Belt Movement would also enlist the help of schools to educate children about the need for trees, and then they would send home seedlings. Uh, this is still a common practice in schools throughout Africa. Wangari decided to campaign for the parliamentary seat representing her home region of Nairi in 1982. She resigned from her university position because that was required by law to run for elected positions, but she was told that she was ineligible to run for office because of a technicality. She went back to the university and asked if she could have her job back and they told her no, 
they'd already felt it, which was devastating. Uh, Wangari had lived in faculty housing, so now she was homeless and careerless. But she didn't let it get her down. She decided to focus completely on the Greenbelt movement. Politically, Kenya was becoming more and more authoritarian. People were expected to agree with political leadership and fall in line. Wangari either didn't get the memo or got the memo and decided that she was not unafraid to speak her mind. In the late 80s, she really angered the powers that be by openly and loudly opposing the plans to construct a 60-story office tower in the middle of Nairobi's recreational Uhuru Park. The president at the time, Daniel Arap Moy, wanted that tower to be built for prestige. It would be the tallest building in all of Africa. Wangari wanted all construction to wait until an environmental impact report was done. She was concerned because Uhuru Park was one of the last remaining green areas in Nairobi. It provided a natural green space for downtown workers and urban residents, and it was located over a potential earthquake area and over an underground river. The construction project would also require loans from international investors, and it would double Kenya's existing international debt. The Greenbelt Movement applied for a permit to stage a public demonstration against the project, but as you can imagine, the permit was denied. No politicians agreed with the Greenbelt Movement and spoke out against the plans, but locally, the Kenya Public Law Institute and also the Architectural Society did agree with Wangari's concerns. The international media was paying attention, and coverage of the potential issues eventually led to the foreign investors withdrawing their support. It was a huge victory for the Greenbelt Movement and for all environmentalist groups. This is just the beginning of Wangari's story, but this is where our episode on her conservation work will wrap up. She eventually realized that it would take more than just planting trees to truly change Kenya. She made many powerful enemies in her country and struggled to be heard. There was violence and heartache, but also support and admiration. She was always appreciated most by the grassroots communities that she helped to help themselves and as a powerful example internationally. The Green Belt Movement is still active today and is still dedicated to tree planting, water harvesting, and climate change. They're also involved in mainstream advocacy and gender livelihood and advocacy. A link to their website will be in the show notes in case you want to check them out more. Wangari Mathai died on September 25th, 2011 of complications arising from ovarian cancer. Before her passing, she made sure to tell those closest to her that she must not be buried in a wooden coffin, further reaffirming her lifelong battle to save trees and the rest of the environment. Nanimo Basi, a Nigerian environmental activist, said of Wangari, If no one applauds this great woman in Africa, the trees will clap. I 
I wanted to end this episode with a quote directly from Wangari. She said, We must never lose hope. When any of us feels she has an idea or an opportunity, she should go ahead and do it. My greatest satisfaction is to look back and see how far we have come. Something so simple but meaning so much, something no one can take away from the people, something that is changing the face of the landscape. I never knew when I was working in my backyard that what I was playing around with would one day become a whole movement. One person can make the difference. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and share with your friends. And remember that we're doing a giveaway this month. To win a copy of this super fun book, Harriet's Ruffled Feathers, The Women Who Saved Millions of Birds, written by Joa McCullough and illustrated by Romina Galata, please follow the Instagram page at Have You Met Her Podcast. Every friend that you tag in the pinned giveaway post will earn you another entry. Every Apple podcast review, just write a few words about what you enjoy about the podcast, will also earn an additional entry. And if you aren't on Instagram or don't use Apple Podcasts, don't worry. You can email me at haveyoumetherpodcast at gmail.com for an entry. Entries will close on July 25th, and I will announce the winner on July 26th podcast, episode 22. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform that you're using so that you never miss an episode. Have a good week and I'll see you next week.